Welcome to another episode of Complete Developer Podcast, the podcast by coders for coders about all aspects of creating your best life as a developer. I'm Will, the accomplished developer and aspiring software architect. And I'm Beach, the journeyman developer sharing my journey in development. Complete Developer Podcast is supported by listeners like you. We are now on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash complete developer podcast. If you're a developer using a compiled programming language, your craft kind of depends on your compiler. Computers are not capable of natively understanding any of your code. Instead, the machine must be told what to do in a way that it understands. Depending on your language and platform, to do this, you may find yourself relying on either a compiler or an interpreter. In this episode, we're going to talk a little bit about how compilers work. While you can be a reasonably successful developer, even without understanding this, if you really want to become a highly skilled software developer, you'll need deeper knowledge about what is going on behind the scenes. This episode will sort of lay the groundwork for you to get started on that deeper dive. But before we get started, Will, what have you been fighting this week? Well, dude, the book manuscript is done. Uh, 242 pages. Yes. I know. That's awesome. Uh, And now the edits happen and editing is (laughs) supposedly worse. Um, But I have an editor, right? So I just have to go in and approve the edits and maybe fix a few things. And there's back and forth. I'm sure it's going to take an age to get it done, but at least the manuscript is out of the way. Um, And then so like Tuesday, uh, I was like, okay, you know, I can... I kind of chill out a little bit, you know, and then I started like working on the SEO of our website and figured out that we weren't showing up in Google search console. It never crawls. There's all kinds of stuff that was screwed up. So I had to go in and fix that. And I'm still waiting to find out if I actually fixed it. Uh, and then last night I was like, oh, you know, I could totally chill out. I got the book done and I realized, oh yeah, I got to write a show outline for tomorrow. So yep. I still have not really relaxed, uh, I guess is what I'm getting to. How about you? Well, I completely understand that this week has been crazy busy. Um, The semester is ending at school, so I've been studying a lot. Um, Not really as much as I'd like, though. Uh, I just I don't feel like I'm I'm studying at the level that I used to study at, uh, if you know what I mean. Yeah, you Uh, don't have the uh, neuroplasticity in the free time. uh, The neuroplasticity I have, the free time I do not. Um, Also, work has me pretty busy too. Uh, so we're kind of finishing one project. So they've put me on a bunch of smaller things, either advising or building like a little piece here, a little piece there. Uh, so that's kind of got me bouncing all over the place. Uh, I have gotten to build some pretty cool stuff in .NET Core though. However, it all takes a back seat if a bug is found in the one that's about to go out. So it's, you know, it's, it's that attitude of, I don't want to get too deep into it because I know at any point I could be pulled out. Yeah, I'm fighting a lot of that, too. I, I know no. the feeling. Now, in better news, I'm getting ready to head down to my sister's for Easter, which is this coming Sunday. Uh, this is coming out several weeks after that, but uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. I get to see her and my nieces, uh, though I do have to ride for eight or nine hours in a car with my mom. So which- is that entire trip in states that have laws against open containers? Well, Tennessee doesn't. I'm not sure about Georgia or Florida. I don't there think Florida go. does. So, 
<laughs> now you need to do some legal research quickly. Yes, yes. But anyways, uh, my sister texted me the other day asking if I'd like to go to a concert. And uh, I'm thinking, oh, it's probably, you know, one of the kids at school. Um, I probably would have known if it was a niece or something. But anyways, I was like, yeah, I love concerts. What, what kind of show is it? And she's like, Garth Brooks. As if I should have known this. Right. I'm like, apparently, my mom knew that they had tickets to the Garth concert and knew that she like, we we're going to be watching the kids while they go. I wasn't informed of this, but they have an extra ticket. So, guess who gets to go see Garth? <laughs> Your mother. No, me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mom doesn't like concerts. She's, uh, she's like you when it comes to crowds. Yeah. Um, but, uh, of course... Obviously, I said yes. Uh, he was my favorite musician as a child. And now, when I got to my teen years, that led to Tom Petty and Metallica. Don't ask about the combination there. It's unique. And I was a really strange child and teenager and adult. Anyways, I'm really excited about getting to see Garth again. But uh, speaking of seeing, I have something for eyesight in IOTs. One step closer to Geordi's visor in Star Trek, eSight is a way to help the visually impaired see things that they normally couldn't. Uh, it works by capturing high quality video and displaying it on two high resolution screens, one in front of each eye. Uh, this footage is also enhanced by custom optics and sort of a special algorithm designed specifically for the wearer. It allows people to live out normal lives, enjoy their hobbies, and even see their loved ones again when their eyesight goes bad. It is rather expensive, uh, though they do have a payment plan, and it's probably around the same or less than uh, optical surgery in a lot of cases. Uh, while not exactly Internet of Things, I just like that this is a really unique way of using technology to enhance people's lives. I thought it was really cool. A uh, really creative way of doing that. And I'll have a link to it in the show notes if you guys want to check it out. If you know someone with impaired vision that might benefit from this, you can send them the link. Who's talking to us this week? Uh, well, we got tagged in a tweet from John Folder sa saying, Days 24 through 31 of 100 Days of Code. I've been hard at the coding, but slow on the tweets. Been working on learning React hooks, integrating with MongoDB and Next. Surfing all the great waves. Autumn is the best. Catching up on my favorite podcasts at Syntax FM and at Complete Dev Pod. So, John, uh, thanks so much. Uh, given that you're talking about autumn and it's April right now, I'm guessing you're somewhere in the southern hemisphere. Uh, surfing, I'm going to go with Australia. So, uh, or, or he just read the <laughs> angular documentation and got so, so confused. He doesn't know which hemisphere. So it could be that. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's that. Yeah. It has um, that effect. Yeah. Australia is on my places to visit, but realistically where isn't. Yeah. Um, I, I like to travel as you guys know, I haven't traveled as much as I would love to. Uh, but there, there are, is a big list of places I do want to go. John, really, though, thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate that. Send us a direct message with your contact information because we've got a complete developer water bottle just for you. 
Guys, if you'd like your very own Complete Developer Water Bottle, leave us a review on iTunes or comment on the website or any of our social media. We post all of our episodes to Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. We're also on Instagram and Tumblr, though I haven't posted very much on those, so I'm going to try to get back to that. Check us out each week on Facebook Live. We talk about what's going on in the tech world and answer some listener questions. We're going to be expanding our live show since we just got Restream. And we're going to see what other platforms we can get into and how we can better be out there for our audience. Or you could join the conversation anytime via Slack by going to slack.completedevelopernetwork.com. Compilers are required tools for software development. Essentially, a compiler translates your written code into something that a machine can use. Most of the details of this episode come from the book Compilers, Principles, Techniques, and Tools, um, which has uh, four authors. Mm -hmm. Um, We're not going to list it out. Uh, It's an excellent book for deeply understanding how compilers actually work under the hood uh, in detail. Uh, You may have heard this book referred to as the Dragon Book because of its over-the-top, really awesome cover. This book is how I learned the most about compilers and is much more of an in-depth discussion than we can possibly cover in an episode. It's right at a thousand pages. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's like, you know, the book has gone from like reading size to like beating people size, (laughs) you know, like it's, it's, you know, it's like Bible size, you know, you can, you could definitely smite someone with it. Oh, you know, if you ever want to get me a book, you can, you can do that. Right. Right. Or maybe one of the audience can. Yeah, well, there we go. You never know what'll happen. So we're going to start off with a few definitions. And by a few, I mean quite a few. I trimmed it as much as I could. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's all I'm going to say. It's just there's a lot of stuff that you kind of need to have in place to understand why this is a problem before Mm -hmm. we get into how this problem got solved. So the first thing and the most obvious definition is what is a compiler? And a compiler is a program that can read a program in one language, that would be the source language, and translate it into an equivalent program in another language, that would be the target language. So I see three definitions in there, compiler, source language, and target language. Right. Yeah. I mean, you just, you have, you know, two different languages going on and then something that transfers from one to the other, usually down to a closer to the machine version of it. So speaking of that, The next definition is a high-level language. Uh, This is a language with a strong degree of abstraction from the details of how the computer operates. Uh, So an example of this would be like C++, C Sharp, Visual Basic, Python. Right. There's loads of them. Ruby, SQL. Um, But the other thing that a lot of people might be surprised to see is C++. Because, well, you got to deal with memory management, but you're not really, really dealing with it. Um, you're dealing with, you know, C++'s wrapper around it. Um, it's a lot different further down. Uh, that's why it would be called a high-level language. Now, the next one is a low-level language um, as opposed to a high-level. And this is a language that provides very little or no abstraction from the computer's instruction set architecture. An example of this would be Assembler. And I've been learning a little bit of that in the course I'm in this semester. Uh, Not very much. It's not very, very heavy into it, but just a little bit. We we actually started off even lower than Assembler. But uh, yeah, it's it's a uh, completely different thought space, right? Like I um, I took a 
uh, one of our projects at a job I had in college, and I wrote a C++ program with inline assembler in it and sped a process up by 3,750%. And that was in a debug build, too. Uh, and, you know, that that's neither here nor there, but, like, it is, it is a weird way to code in a lot of respects. What's really funny is when it came out, it, it was, was an like, improvement. Yeah, it, it was the it was the hey, here's how we can make this human readable. So that's that's try to wrap your brain around that, especially if you you don't have a CS degree and haven't messed with this or learned about it much. You know, this really low level stuff that looks like a bunch of nonsense was uh, when it came out considered the easy human readable version. Yeah. Uh, so. So we dropped another uh, definition in that uh, previous one, which is the instruction set architecture. And this is essentially an abstract model of a computer. And this defines everything that a machine language programmer needs to know to program the computer. These define things like the CPU registers, main memory, how the memory is addressed, and things like that. This is the stuff that I'm learning in the class I'm in right now, or have been learning. I'm studying for the final now, but... Uh, and uh, in a future episode, we're going to kind of talk more about this. Um, either Will is going to write it from his experience in school, or I'm going to write it from my recent experience in school. Yeah, like, I, it may be better for you to do it, because when I did it, it was 16-bit. Um, no, that's what I learned, too. Is oh, you did, bit. too? Yeah. Well, maybe it won't um, be so bad, then. Yeah, I mean, it's... it's I have this book, uh, our textbook is The Elements of Computing Systems, Building a Modern Computer from First Principles. And uh, it's it's a really good book. The great thing about this is, like, if you follow along, like you read each chapter, and Will can see my highlights in it, but uh, if you read each chapter and you do the assignments, by the end of the book, you have built a basically a computer Yeah, from the ground up. So the next definition is machine language. And machine language is built up from discrete statements or instructions. And this is per Wikipedia. Uh, an instruction may specify the CPU registers in use, an operation occurring on the contents of the register, and a memory location. Uh, these may include logical operations, arithmetic operations, control flow, all that kind of stuff. Now, let's talk about what a register is. A register is a quickly accessible location in the CPU of a computer. This is faster than your main memory. It's faster than you know anything else pretty much that you've got. Uh, it's also very, very small. So like most systems will load data from memory locations into registers, do operations on the contents of the register, and then move the data back into memory. In fact, mm -hmm. I can't think of any architecture that I've ever seen that's done otherwise. This process, by the way, is why it's faster if you have something in a register and you need to clear the register and set it to zero, it's faster to XOR the register's contents with itself than it is to pull a zero out of memory and put it in there. Yeah. Registers are usually referred to by their size, which is expressed in bits. So when I was talking about 16-bit assembler earlier, that's what I was talking about. They're also usually named, like a uh, modern x86 architecture will have several duplicates of a lot of their registers for the purpose of performance. Right. So if you've got a you know, EAX register, you actually have several different registers that you're writing to when you're putting stuff in there. And mm -hmm. the CPU kind of can do some speculative execution. It can do a lot of other stuff to optimize getting stuff in and out of the processor um, yeah. in parallel. And that's why that's there. Yeah, there's a lot about this in, um, in my 
my textbook from the semester on how to read and write from register and how the register reads and writes from memory and stuff like that. So the next thing to talk about real quick is the memory addresses. And memory addresses are references to a specific location in the computer's memory. They're usually unsigned integers of some size or other. You know, whatever the the OS supports, whatever the hardware supports, you know, that's kind of how that would play out. Now, the next piece we're going to talk about is the stack. And the stack is a data structure that stores information about the active subroutines of a computer program. Again, this is from Wikipedia. Essentially, when you call another function, relevant variables from your current function are pushed onto the stack. And this will also include a pointer to the location in memory of the currently executing instruction. Next, instruction proceeds to the memory location when the function you called begins. In other words, it jumps down and says, okay, here's the next piece we're doing. It goes through it. When it returns, the stuff is popped back off the stack and you basically restore your previous context. Uh, This, by the way, is how things like buffer overflows get you is because you can actually overwrite a stack frame in mm-hmm. some cases. Yeah, the the book that I've been using as a textbook has really great like drawn out process to follow. There's also some really great YouTube videos that uh, that I've had to watch from class that are just they're freely available cuz they're on YouTube. So yeah. if and if you watch those dude, you will see that we are simplifying the ever-loving daylights out of this. Um, There's a lot more going on, especially when you start looking at uh, what's happening, you know, at the processor level. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There's Um, there's a lot down there. And, uh, you know, I I watch those videos when I'm at the gym on the treadmill. So, like, I'm just, it's either, it's either watch a school video or watch the TVs. It seems like you would put the assembler video behind you so you can run away from it. <laughs> that seems like that's uh, that's how most people would react to that. <laughs> yeah. So getting back to the stack, once everything is done, the previous address is kind of popped off the stack and execution goes back there and the relevant variables from the previous call are also popped off the stack. And the relevant variables, by the way, it might not be like a string, right? It's probably a pointer to the beginning of the string. It's lower level. It's not, hey, here's a, you know, here's a kilobyte of crap that's on the stack. It's, no, here's here's yeah. the start of it, and here's the length, maybe. So the final definition we're going to talk about is compiler passes. Compilers can either be single pass or multi-pass. Lilu Dallas, multi-pass. <laughs> what I was thinking, multi-pass. <laughs> <laughs> so single-pass compilers are usually a lot faster, um, and a lot of your earlier ones are single-pass. Think like Pascal. Yeah, Delphi, uh, I think, still is. I miss Pascal. Sure that. that was one of my favorite classes I took in high school. Now, the, the Lilu Dallas multi-pass compilers uh, go through the process several times and are advantageous for more advanced optimizations of the compiled code. Right. So essentially, and we're going to get into this here in a bit, but it basically it hits it repeatedly to trim down the amount of code it has to execute. So let's talk about why you need a compiler. Yeah. Why would you need a compiler? Come on. <laughs> yeah. I mean, can't you just like get a really, really small magnet and mess with the bits yourself? Um, <laughs> no. So, We really, really simplified the explanations above. Like every one of these things has got a huge Wikipedia page that's linked to a bunch of other huge Wikipedia pages. Like it's, it's terrible uh, how much is actually going on there. 
Programming an assembler or another truly low-level language is a lot harder to reason about for most people. You know, if you're if you're going, okay, I want to make the machine do this thing, it's great. If you're going, I want my program to do this thing and you know, get the machine to do it for me, that's a little trickier. Um, it really feels honestly like my feeling on assembler is it's almost like programming by side effect. Like I made the machine do something and set it in a certain state. And then I got the result as a side effect of what I told the machine to do, not because I implicitly told the machine to do it, if that makes sense. Yeah, I follow what you're saying. It's like a bank shot or, you know, it's it's just a really uh, it's really difficult, especially when you're doing something really complex uh, mm-hmm. to, to do it in assembler. So the hardware that your code runs on is going to vary quite a bit especially at the lower levels. And you really want a layer of abstraction around that so that you can write a program and have it run on other computers. Well, that, that was the whole thing with Assembler when it first came out was that you had one language that you could write that would, that would compile to the machine language on different computers. Because before that, you yeah. had to write it for the specific processor that you were doing. And not just... Not just the specific like brand, but the, the model, the model, the version of and that the model, chipset and all that kind yeah, of fun stuff. Yeah, like it, it had to be super, super specific. And so that was the great thing about Assembler is, oh, hey, now we don't have to do that. We can write write it in one language and then have it compile down to whatever chipset it needs to be on. Yeah, and then we started complicating our uh, chipsets. <laughs> well, still there's that. I mean, it's like we do this every you know every little while in computing, right? Like you even have languages now that can compile down to different versions of JavaScript, <laughs> right? Th- yeah, yeah. Or ORMs that compile down to different SQL, you know, stuff mm-hmm. like it's. This is never going away. We really like our abstractions, and you know, you can really um, optimize lower level code a lot. Um, but it takes a lot of time and a lot of optimizations are more easily done by a tool instead of a person, you know, because the program can do a lot of things automatically. And, you know, the other fun thing that makes this more complex now, especially is that processors can do multiple things at a time. And this is really hard for people to reason about just in general. So that that's another thing that's going to be in the mix. Well, it's multi-core processors, right? Right. That's what you're talking about. Yeah. So well, multi-core, and then you've also got uh, you've got all the scheduling of when stuff goes into the processor. Right. So it, it seems like it's doing multiple things at a time, but like it's really each core is only doing one thing at a time. It's just so fast, and it's it's going between different things that it. Uh, it well, and you've also got some other weird bits, right? Yeah. You got speculative execution going yeah. on. You've got branch path prediction. There's a lot of stuff that if you or I had to write a for loop. And just put it on the CPU, we would have a really hard time getting yeah. that right and doing anything with it. Yeah, it's it's it. There's so many layers of complexity. It's kind of what I was getting at is that it is just that you want that abstraction so you don't have to deal with it. Yeah, um, you want a mental model that works with what you're doing. In other words, if the CPU scheduling and stuff is your problem, you really want it to be your only problem. Yeah, that's true. So next, we're going to talk about the compiler front end. 
the front end of the compiler is responsible for analyzing the source code to build an internal representation of the program. This includes building a symbol table, which maps parts of the source code to information associated with them. Right. And this is usually broken into three phases. So the first one is called lexing. And that's basically where it looks at your code and it breaks that sequence of characters into a sequence of tokens, which are strings with an assigned and identified meaning. Um, Next is syntax analysis, which converts the sequence of symbols or tokens and turns that into a representation of the code as an expression, usually in a tree form. Uh, This is called a parse tree. Right. And the idea here is, you know, they do that first phase to clean stuff up, essentially, and kind of make it easier to build that parse tree out of it. So these are just, you know, phases that are easily proved correct. And that's why it's structured the way it is. Yeah, the, um, that those first two phases are where you get a lot of your linting, too, and where you can get your, your red squigglies or whatever, depending on your IDE. Right, like your syntax errors and stuff come out of there. A lot of those do. Um, The next one is the semantic analysis. And this adds semantic information to the parse tree and builds up the symbol table. So this is like where um, your functions and stuff are, where your variables are, what they're called. You know, it kind of builds all those references up so that the rest of the process can proceed faster. This also does a lot of your type checking, uh, object binding. That's where you say, okay, I have this thing being assigned to this property of this object, how does that really happen? Uh, you know, that, that sort of stuff gets set up. And this varies a lot depending on the language in use. This is also when really incorrect programs start getting detected in a lot of cases. I mean, you'll have like your big syntax errors, and then you'll have other things like type issues that come up later. This, by the way, is why a lot of times when you're typing in your IDE and you really screw up, you get a set of errors. And then if you fix those, you'll get another set of errors. You've gone to another phase of the front end of the compiler, if that makes sense. Yeah, that does. So the front end may be preceded with a pre-processing phase that uh, handles things like macro substitution, conditional compilation constants, those types of things. Right. And so this would be, um, you don't see it as much in like C sharp and languages like that, but um, you will see conditional compilation constants sometimes, uh, especially if you're looking at situations where you've got like, you know, like that pound if to say, okay, it's, this is running in Silverlight versus this is running in regular .NET and you change the statements you're using and then you'll set those before you run through and compile. And so you can make different versions of the program for different architectures with that. That happens obviously before the rest of this happens because it changes the actual code that's evaluated. So the next phase is called the middle end because somebody, um, I don't know, I think somebody was probably delirious when they decided to call it that. So that's a thing. And the middle end of the compiler. wait, you didn't make that up. Somebody else made that up. Somebody else made that up. Wow. Okay. I thought yeah, you. I thought that, you were being silly there when I read this outline. Nope. It was somebody else. Wow. Um, somebody they really were probably, smart. They were probably being silly. Like, like we, we know uh, some really smart people that are are that level goofy. Yeah. Or you know, calling a uh, defect a bug. Yeah. Right. Well, that was because they literally found a 
a yeah, bug but it was a back in- reference eventually, right? Yeah, yeah. So the middle end is responsible for optimizing the intermediate representation that's produced at the front end. So you get that parse tree out and all the annotations and stuff that are hanging off of it. And this usually has a couple of steps. And the first one is analysis. So it'll apply a bunch of different approaches here, but the goal is to find operations in that parse tree whose complexity can be reduced. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the next thing is actual optimization where you actually apply those things. And so you have this uh, structure of essentially expressions in that parse tree and you go, Hey, you know, this thing is adding two constants, for instance. Yeah. Let's, you know, let's fix that and just put the actual value up there. And so, you know, let's talk about a few of the things that might happen when this goes on. So inline expansion, which replaces a function call with the contents of the function. This saves a jump or a stack allocation. Uh, it basically turns a, a functional or uh, object style into procedural, where it, it just it pulls that and puts it in there. Uh, that that's right? one way it'll do. Uh, the other thing it will do is just go, "Hey, this is a little bitty function. Instead of having a jump, let's just." copy the yeah, code. Well, okay, so so I, I didn't say that that's what it does for smaller things. I, I, I didn't emphasize that. I was more yeah. focused on what it does, not that it only does it with the smaller things. But yeah, yeah. Yeah, the best way to think about this is almost like having a crappy programmer on staff that copies and pastes code, yeah. right? So that it's all right there. That's what this is doing for you, but it's it's not affecting the readability of the code. It's just making it simpler for the machine to deal with because it doesn't have to do as much stuff. This is also one of the things that uh, you and I were talking about the other day. You got burned by the optimizations in C-sharp compiling, mm-hmm. and some stuff wasn't hitting breakpoints because they weren't there. Yeah, so um, it, was, it was .NET Core. That was the, the interesting thing, is it was defaulting to the release build in my test cases. So when I tried to debug a test case it had the optimized code set, which was creating these inline expansions. And so I wasn't able to hit those. And I was not able to actually see what some of the values were because they weren't available for the debugger to look at. It was really frustrating. Um, It's one of those things that I was like, really, that doesn't do this in your regular .NET, but .NET Core, you have to go in there and manually uh, set it to not do that. Uh, it was kind of annoying, but it was amusing though. When you uh, sent me the message, cause I was like, Oh yeah, I know what that is. Yeah. <laughs> cause I, you know, I've done enough, enough stuff where I've been hit with that. And like, I just don't trust any compiler optimizations when I'm debugging mm-hmm. um, because of that sort of thing. Well, yeah. And the thing is my problem with that was I didn't know that optimization was on because yeah. in your, your .NET framework, full framework, when you're running the Microsoft test suite, it runs it in debug mode where that is default off. Right. But with the the MS test in .NET Core, which is basically the same thing, but it's their .NET Core version, it runs it in whatever it's set to, so it doesn't change it to debug for the test purposes. And so it was it was running it in release where all that stuff was turned on. I had to go in and manually shift it over to the debug mode where that was turned off. 
Yeah. And that's a really frustrating experience because I've, I've had it so many times. It's just, uh, and another one that'll happen. Uh, and this is something that you'll, your, even your debugger is going to, you know, have this cleared out and that's dead code removal. So like if mm-hmm. you're returning and then you're looping after that, that never gets called. It's heuristically unreachable. That's, that's very good. And like in the .NET world, Visual Studio will actually tell you when your code is unreachable. Right. These are the warnings that come out of the, um, was it the front end, the middle of the front end? Yeah. Um, yeah it's that syntax uh, analysis part um, that it's, it's doing, it's running that without you having to run the code. And it says, hey, and I think a lot of your IDEs will do that. Um, things like Notepad++ and Visual Studio Code may not because they're not IDEs, they are editors. Yeah, the compiler will uh, usually kick it out if you put the right switches in, and that's how yeah. the IDE gets it most of the time. But mm-hmm. yeah, it that can be a little bit of a surprise, if, especially, you know, I use ReSharper, and so it screams at me every time I do something yeah. like that. So I get, you know, that's fixed. Now, um, the next one is what you were talking about earlier in this point, which is constant propagation. If an expression is composed entirely of constants, then it just replaces it with the constant. Right. So like if you have two variables and, you know, one of them's, you know, called A and it's set equal to two and you got another one called B and it's set equal to three. And then you're setting another variable and you're saying, hey, we're going to call this one C and set it equal to A plus B. Instead of doing that operation at runtime, it's just going to put a five in there. That's basically what this does. It, you know, depending on the language and depending on, a lot of things, it may be fairly complex to the degree that it does this kind of stuff. So the next thing that can happen is called loop transformation. And there's there's a ton of stuff that happens here. This includes optimizations to break a loop into multiple loops, uh, to bring inner loops to the outside in some cases, uh, you know, where it reduces the load on the, the CPU. Uh, a lot of this is done for performance. And, you know, we'll probably just have to write an episode on this. I will tell you that this is very, very important because most program code actually happens inside of a loop. You know, with all of your your apps, basically, if they're waiting for input, that's a big honking loop right there. And so anything you can do to optimize loop execution is really, really valuable for a compiler. Yeah, uh, I do think we have an episode on the the thing for loops. I know we have one for sorting algorithms, so... Yeah. So the the final one that that can happen, or at least you know another big one, is automatic parallelization. And this is what you know what it does is it converts sequential code into parallel code so that multiple parts can execute at the same time. So like you you fire something off and you go, hey, get me this file and open it up. Well, if there's another step right after that that isn't dependent on that one, that one can be kicked off while you're waiting on the hardware to come back. And so it'll do a lot of scheduling type actions in there for this. So finally, we've made it to the back and we're going to talk about the back end. This is responsible for CPU architecture specific optimization and for actual code generation. So there, there are two main phases here. Machine dependent optimizations such as peephole optimizations, which rewrite 
short sequences of instructions into more efficient instructions. Yeah, and you would see this a lot, um, especially like with older processors, you know, for instance, where uh, people would manually calculate, you know, square roots, for instance. And it turns out that, hey, this one processor has got the ability to do that itself with a single instruction, Mm -hmm. and it all happens on the chip instead of you manually pulling stuff in and putting stuff out and trying to do it your way. Uh, It was the same kind of thing with uh, dealing with floating point numbers and those kind of things, like back when they had the uh, arithmetic logic units started kind of coming in. Uh, So there'll be stuff like that. There'll be stuff with, uh, you know, potentially with GPUs, you'll have similar kind of processes going on. Uh, you'll have stuff with parallel stuff, you know, with hyper-threading, uh, all those kind of things, uh, you know, can occur. And depending on the chipset, you may actually have to switch and do it differently to get all the efficiency out. So that's what's happening here. It's, har- you know, hardware optimizations specific for the chipset on which you're compiling. The other is code generation, which is the point where the intermediate version produced by the machine-dependent optimizations is converted into the actual output language. Right. So it just, it it optimizes and then it does it at this Mm -hmm. point because all the optimizations that it can do are kind of out of the way. So basically the the compiler front end is sort of checking for issues. Yeah, it's validation and it's prepping. Yeah. The middle end is huge on optimization. Like we, we spent most of our time there talking about the various types of optimization. When you get to the back end, you've got kind of your last little bit of optimization. And then the last step in this is, hey, the whole point of it is converting it to another language. And so this is where you you generate that. So we've we've checked it. It's working right. We've optimized it to the nth degree where there's no more possible optimization that can be done. Now we're going to generate the new code. Um, Yeah. And I think the other thing that we probably kind of left off in that middle was that those are machine independent optimizations. It's like mathematically, this is not as efficient as it could be. Whereas the back end is like on this chip, it's not as efficient as it could be because there may be caches. There's all kinds of, there's a lot of stuff going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that's that's sort of what I was getting at with like you you've got the the abstract optimizations there in the middle, and then you've got the specific optimizations here. And now we're getting into that. Now that we've optimized at every level possible, we're going to generate the code, and it's rather complicated as well. Yeah. So a lot of decisions about storage and scheduling happen during this phase. So like where stuff goes, like which CPU register it needs to go into, uh, you know, where it is in the cache. This is where like your L2 cache gets controlled. Um, this kind of thing, by the way, is why like a lot of your high level languages, you can't get the performance out that you can on a lower level language because it's really hard to do this well in an automated fashion and always have it work. Also, this may involve rearranging the order of instructions in a program uh, to something that is basically computationally equivalent, but has less risk of kind of stalls in the pipeline. Yeah, so this is uh, very similar to deadlocks, right? Like I'm writing something and I need to read it. 
and there's multiple mm-hmm. pieces interacting with it. If that goes in the wrong order, you know, you either get a bad result or you just can't get a result. And none of us have ever had that problem ever. Yeah. I, like even at, at, at much higher levels, we've not had that kind of a problem. And imagine the stress. Like I, I'm just thinking of sometimes that I had to write something to the database and later in that same API call, build a report from what was written to the database. Right. And it has to be committed to the database before you right. get it back. Um, so I'm just thinking the- about all the complications there. And that's really abstract and high up. So think about all those headaches, but well, much more low level and specific to like individual chipsets. Like I, I just, I. Well, and there's no guards. That's the other thing, right? Yeah. Like with a database transaction, you can say, hey, I, I'm going to wait for this transaction to complete and to be in there before mm-hmm. I read. Or, hey, I, I'm willing to take this level of dirty reads. Yeah. Right. Whereas with the CPU, when you're doing that, it's just like, yeah, it's always a dirty read. Yeah. You just got to have some method to say, how dirty is it yourself? <laughs> you're making the heuristic. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's like, I'm, I'm, I'm just thinking like of where I've had to deal with that. And whew, like, I, I couldn't like th- this is such low level dealing with that kind of stuff here is, is crazy. Yeah. And Basically, um, you know, we were talking about the pipeline stall thing, mm-hmm. and that occurs when you're trying to avoid a hazard. So, uh, again, the dirty read type situation where you could corrupt data. Yeah. Because you got to also bear in mind a lot of the stuff that's happening at the CPU level isn't your computation. It's not you going, I'm filling in a report. It's this thing going, hey, what's the next memory location from here? And so you can yeah. screw up all kinds of stuff. You can damage hardware at this yeah. point. And, yeah. and so they, they're super careful. Yeah. So like those things, those hazards occur when the next instruction can't execute in the following clock cycle, or it'll execute with a bad result. Like you're talking about, um, oh man, clock cycles. I've been learning about those. That's, that's a whole, we didn't even get into that. Yeah. And so you'll see stuff where it's like, hey, I need to load this and do this instruction. And then the next instruction isn't dependent on it. And so it loads the first one and then, you know, starts loading the second one on the next clock cycle and then does the evaluation for the first one and then does the evaluation for the second one because of the amount of latency. Yeah. And like that's completely normal for these kind of programmers to deal with. And that Mm -hmm. is not normal for the rest of us normally. Right. That, That makes perfect sense. Basically, these hazards can result either when the timing issues that we're talking about with the CPU aren't considered or when timing issues around when data should be read or written aren't considered. And we, we've kind of given a couple of high level examples here. That's just, it, it's really a lot. Think deadlocks and race conditions, which is what we've been talking about, but at that super low level. Um, right. And and things where you have like you're trying to read out of a register to put it into memory mm-hmm. and the next instruction, you know, is happening while you're doing that read and it overwrote what you had in there. Right. I mean, there's just there, there's a lot of stuff that those people really deal with. And, you know, we should probably be pretty grateful. <laughs> um, the other thing that can really burn you is uh, memory addressing 
You know, like when mm-hmm. stuff is allocated, where is it allocated? How is all that stuff managed? Um, even if you're doing a not so high level language like C++, you're not ever really saying, hey, I want you to create, you know, give me a chunk of memory at this location. You're saying, hey, give me this amount of memory somewhere. Well, right. the somewhere gets allocated here mm-hmm. and that gets figured out. It's just, you know, like slots and pipes type things. It's not. Yeah. And it you you say in the C++, give me this size memory. This looks at it and goes, all right. It, it probably, for optimization purposes, has to go, okay, where do I have that amount of memory and where is that not going to be a problem? Because, let, I mean, I, I think of, and this is a crazy example, but I think of ordering concert tickets. When, when I order tickets for a concert, they really don't want me to buy uh, three seats next to each other when there's four seats in a row there, because then they're going to have a lot of trouble selling that one seat. Right. And so it deals with like memory fragmentation and all that. I mean, the OS gets a lot of this, uh-huh. but bear in mind, this is what the OS is running too. Yeah. And it's going, okay, I'm allocating memory at this location and they've got to have some way of knowing that that's allocated. And yeah. you get this low level, like all the safeguards that we're used to are just not there. Mm-hmm. Code generation also generates a lot of other useful artifacts. Um, like the information that your debugger uses may also be generated during this part of the process. Right. And so you have debugger symbols, um, you know, when you're going through and you're debugging, that's basically like, I am currently at this location and, you know, that's got basically kind of an ID or a symbol and you can look it up in the PDB and it says, here is the line number and the file it is basically the gist there. And so when you're stepping through, you know, you can actually see what just executed and you can get all that information, you know, at the current execution point. And that's really, really important. Um, I do know a lot of people that really don't like debuggers. And so they'll just log everything. Now, there, there's a reason for that. Okay, right? If it's me or you, that's kind of, okay, you're a little weird, you know, but whatever. But if you're, I don't know, Linus Torvalds or you're some guy that's writing a debugger and you know how that particular sausage is made. You don't trust the guy writing a debugger because he's like you, at which point you just log. But, you know, for the rest of us, this is a really important thing that happens during the code generation. It's essentially, you know, the PDBs, you could almost look at them as another representation of your program. It's just not really executed by the CPU. That makes sense. So guys, There is a lot going on in the process of converting your high-level code into something that the machine can actually use. Uh, While you may not have to worry about this stuff on sort of a day-to-day basis, it is really important to understand what's actually happening to convert your code into something that the machine can use. I know we talked about a situation that happened to me just earlier this week where having that understanding helped me figure out, oh, hey, it's in the wrong mode. That's why I'm not able to actually debug this and see what's going on. In a lot of cases, understanding what is going on under the hood can help you troubleshoot certain kinds of performance problems and other weird issues in your code. Additionally, the understanding of how compilers work can also be informative when dealing with certain kinds of problems in that higher level code. 
Guys, that pretty much wraps us up. Before we close everything out, Will, what do you have for us this week for Tricks of the Trade? Well, one of the things that was super valuable in this episode and in a discussion of assembler and compilers and all this low-level stuff is realizing that all the safeguards that you have were put there by somebody else, right? Like your uh, the things that protect you from damaging yourself by overriding memory when you shouldn't override it or, uh, you know, having deadlocks or having scheduling issues at the CPU level, all that stuff was written by somebody. There's not a scenario that occurred just in nature. And this happened. This also tells you that as you get higher up, there's going to be cases where those things have bugs and you'll see this periodically with processors. In fact, the, um, the Intel chipset and the AMD chipsets recently had some pretty nasty issues that resolved, you know, that were basically around timing. And this was like the speculative execution of code and some of those kind of things that are really, really deep, difficult tasks, you know, that the processor and the compiler get involved in. Uh, the rest of us didn't have to worry about it, except for the fact that we all had to patch. If you don't know that this stuff exists or you don't know how it works, you're not going to understand the value of that patch. So you have to figure out at some point, how do I get the experience with these really, really difficult things so I can understand how the computer works without all the safeguards? Once you do that, you're going to understand how the safeguards work that you're interacting with and when to try to get around them. Uh, You don't want to just copy code off a Stack Overflow that's doing stuff like screwing around with, you know, the way the compiler you know, interacts with a CPU, right? Like you don't want to do that yourself unless you really know what's going on. And it's worth learning all this stuff to do that. Uh, this is why a lot of companies won't hire you unless you've got a CS degree. This stuff is why. Uh, it's not that it's that useful most of the time, but when it is useful, you've got to have this knowledge. Um, now, that said, you don't have to get a CS degree to do that. Uh, you can do it on your own. You can learn how, you know, OSs work. You can learn how kernels work. You can learn how CPUs work. And, you know, we're going to get into more difficult topics around this kind of stuff as we go forward uh, with this podcast. We're, you know, trying to kind of step it up a little bit more. However, um, it still is really, really important. So learn how the machine works. And that's all I got. If you have a question or comment, please email us at neckbeards at completedeveloperpodcast.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from Standby for Titanfall by Pure Bells, available on SoundCloud and licensed through Creative Commons. The intro music for IOTs is Hillbilly Hip Hop by Jason Belcher. For references, show notes, and to sign up for weekly emails with extra tips and insights, be sure to check out the website at completedeveloperpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at CompleteDevPod and like our page on Facebook to keep up with news about the show. Catch us each week as we broadcast live, talking about what's going on in the tech world and answering listener questions. Learn more about all of our shows and groups by going to CompleteDevelopernetwork.com where you'll find links to Junior Developer Toolbox, Developer Launchpad, and our other communities. Thanks for listening. See you next time.